Um, we are in Zephaniah. If y'all want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're thankful y'all are here. If this is your first time here, um, we are going through books of the Bible. Um, generally taking about two weeks at a time. Sunday mornings we move very slowly and like to take decades to finish a book of the Bible. And on Wednesday evenings we move a little more quickly. And so these are overview studies. They're not necessarily meant to be exhaustive. However, um, there's a lot that we are able to cover, especially in the minor prophets, uh, spending about generally two weeks at a time on them. Some of them will spend one week. So uh, we finished Habakkuk last week. We're moving into Zephaniah this week. So if you guys will pray with me, we'll dive right into the text. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to, uh, to be here tonight, to stop down in the middle of the week um, and consider your word. Um, it is a privilege every week, and I pray that we would never take it for granted. Um, I also pray, Lord, uh, particularly this week, I feel like I've spoken to a lot of people who are just exhausted, and <clears throat> I don't know if that's a matter of extracurricular activities and or lack of sleep, or um, hard work schedules, or, um, or a combination of all that. Um, but I know that there are many sitting in this room who are tired um, from work, who are tired from parenting, who are tired from homework, who are tired from teaching. And I just pray that our tiredness would not keep us from the beauty of you breathing out your word for us to consider tonight. So... Uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit would would make up whatever deficiencies we bring in with us and allow us to really be attentive. Um, as always, Lord, I pray for honesty. Um, these minor prophets tend to draw out some uh, some pretty deep thoughts and deep considerations for us as, as very fragile and common people. And so we do pray for honesty tonight and that you would guide this time as you see fit. Lord, you are very good. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in the Minor Prophets, uh, what are some themes that we've seen? We'll dive in, get, a, get the ball rolling here. What are some themes that we have seen in the Minor Prophets? God's people have forgotten him over and over again. What are some other themes? <clears throat> there are other themes, what are some of them? theme of corruption within the church and a theme of judgment, regardless of if you're in the church or out of the church. Yeah, God will judge. He's full of justice. You see the prophets talk about um, desolation and, yep. and cleansing and then a time of rejoicing and joy. Yes. Desolation, cleansing, rejoicing, and joy. What in the world is that sound? Okay. We'll allow that. That's fine. It's a baby. It's okay. I, I just want, my main concern was making sure it wasn't only up here. That was my main concern. Like, does anyone else hear the, yeah. So you're good. You're good. That's totally fine. Want to make sure I'm not losing my mind. All good. So what have we learned about God? 
He does care. He is aware. What else? He can be trusted. What else? Yeah, he'll use Babylon to get his work done. What about um, his people? What have we learned about his people? We've already said part of it. What else is there? There's, his people generally have a lack of understanding of God's character. What else? Short memories. Short memories. Yeah, they're easy to go whatever way the wind blows. What, do we, what have we learned about God's enemies? Yeah. yeah. He uses them even though they don't believe in who he is or what he's doing. Ultimately, they will play the part of whatever he wants them to play. And so it's kind of cool to consider these realities that we're gleaning from minor prophets, because minor prophets haven't always been a real popular realm of study, uh, especially in our setting, I think. And so I've never gone through them before in this manner, and it's kind of fun because this week as I dove into Zephaniah, I found myself encouraged, almost kind of felt like I had, had, I've picked up a knack for reading the minor prophets in the last you know, six weeks. And so there's these themes that we see as we go to them, because once we kind of figure out a little bit of context and what's going on in the church and what's, um, what's happening, we realize God always has something to reveal about himself. God always has something to reveal about his people. And God always has something to reveal about those who set themselves against him. And so that's this theme. No matter which minor prophet you're looking at, we can pick up on those things. When it comes to Zephaniah, look at one one. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, that's one we know, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. That little verse right there reveals to us a lot. In fact, we know more about Zephaniah than we do most of the other prophets because of that one little verse. Um, His great-great-granddaddy was the good king of Israel, Hezekiah. Uh, Mark Dever, in his Old Testament survey, it's like, well, why... Why did he only go back two to the great great? Why didn't he go beyond that or, or stop before that? And uh, Mark Dever says, if your great great granddaddy was Thomas Jefferson, you would probably mention that fact if you were called on to address the entire American nation. So it's this reality as he says he's introducing himself, sort of Hezekiah. He was one of the, you know, it's good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, that whole thing. He was one of the good ones. And so he's throwing it out there. By the way, my great-great-granddaddy's one of the best leaders Israel's ever seen uh, to date. And so he includes that. Prophesied, um, he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah, Josiah, which tells us that this timeline we're working with is somewhere between 639 B.C. and 609 B.C. We've got a 30-year span that we're working with. Now, this is important, and it'll all come together, because we need to know the timelines. Here's why. If you dig a little deeper into our context, you know, we do this with every one of our, our minor prophets. We've got to get the context. We've got to get the background. If you dig a little deeper, it's likely earlier in the reign of Josiah. And so most of the commentators and historians would put this letter around 630 B.C. After Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh, which we considered a few weeks ago, and just before Habakkuk's prophecy against Judah, which we considered last week. So he is prophesying after the prophecy against Nineveh and before the prophecy against Judah from Habakkuk. Well, we know even from history books 
that Nineveh, does, does anyone know what year Nineveh fell to Babylon? What? Guess. No. That's not even close. I mean, it's between 630 and 609. And you said 587. We're so far. 612. 612 is when it fell. And so this is a, actually a really significant point as we're digging in because, yes, we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. But it's always affirming when the content and the timing of a prophecy, something that has not yet occurred, is confirmed by factual historical reality which is something that has absolutely occurred, whether you are a believer or not. The fall of, of Nineveh to Babylon is 612 BC. It happened. And so we know for a fact that this prophecy that we're engaging was, it preceded that by the proper amount of time. So it's cool when we have that kind of affirmation. Yes, we walk by faith, um, not by sight. However, there's a, there's a little bit of, of encouragement in that. This actually happened. These aren't just... People long, long ago, far away in a land, they're not fairy tale characters. These are real people, and these are real kingdoms that really fell to different enemies. So that's affirming. So the first thing we're going to consider, we're going to look at verse 2, is God alone is God. That, that's going to be our first thing we're going to look at. God alone is God. Um, that, that's a recurring theme as well. What does he want to reveal about himself? Well, there's a recurring theme that he wants to reveal that he's the only God that exists. So let's read verses 2 through 9. They're wildly encouraging. I'm sure you will be on the edge of your seat with encouragement. And it starts off, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. So this is the the, the general tone of these minor prophets. Um, It's judgment because of massive sin. This one, however, as we continue to read, it's actually a bit worse. It seems a bit more particular and a bit more... um, just full-on judgment. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. If that does not get your attention, you're not paying attention. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Um, that leaping over the threshold is, is uh, something that we don't know exactly what it means. So if anyone wants to ask, what does that mean? We don't really know. But we can tell from the context, it's bad. Don't leap over the threshold and cause violence in your master's house. So we can use context, but we don't know exactly what it means. So here's the thing. Who is the Lord rebuking in these verses? Judah. Who is Judah? Yeah, southern kingdom. We've got southern kingdom, northern kingdom. He's rebuking them. 
What does God reveal about himself in this rebuke? Kind of got to read between the lines on this one. What does he reveal about himself? And I've kind of already given you a really huge hint. Yeah, he alone is God. And he's not okay with them worshiping other gods. So he's rebuking his own people. I remember growing up and reading um, or having someone read to me from the prophets or something from the Old Testament and I would see this judgment on sinful people. And I remember as a child always thinking, man, who were those people? I'm glad they weren't, I mean, we, God's people are good people and those people, I don't even, I don't even, I didn't even understand. It was just so far away, so hard to wrap my head around that I'm reading as a kid saying, Man, I'm glad we're God's people because these other people were utterly wicked. The reality is the utterly wicked people are the ones calling themselves God's people. And so what we're seeing here is he alone is God and he's not okay with other people, with his people worshiping other gods. Um, Just one generation after this, um, these things were fulfilled as Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians as we've already established. God alone is God and God alone always keeps his promises. This is affirmation. He's made this promise and we know what happens in the coming years. So here's the setting. It's one of either you could call it pluralism, probably more appropriately you could call it syncretism, which means God's people have all this religious stuff, some that has to do with God, some that has absolutely nothing to do with God, and they're trying to make it all work together for their own sort of version of religion that they think is best for their setting. So God's people are guilty of saying they belong to God, worshiping God, yet not worshiping God alone. Their religion had become one of variety. Their religion had become one of variety. If you, if you look at verse uh, 5, he's, take, he's talking about who he's going to stretch his hand out against and cut off. And he says, Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord. So these are people who are God's people who are in fact bowing down to God and swearing to God, not, not swearing like cussing Him like we would say swearing, but, but swearing to Him. Uh, making an oath, and they're bowing down to God. But then they're also, right after that, swearing by Milcom. Does anyone know who Milcom is? If you've got your, your uh, study Bibles, it, it may have a little something on there. Moloch. Yeah, but most believe this is Moloch. And what did they sacrifice to Moloch? Children. I mean, this is vile. Anytime you, in the name of religion or belief or personal whatever, say that it's okay to kill children, um, you are among the evil ones who are being spoken of here. This is not okay. Milcom is Moloch. Um, If they're not the exact same, there's different words that are used. And if they're not the exact same, they're at least of the same affiliation. And, um, And so what we have here is people bowing down to God, swearing to God, and then going and sacrificing their children to Moloch. And it was so screwed up that essentially they were saying, God says to give our first fruits. God says to give our best. And so people would use what God said and take their children and go sacrifice to Moloch because they weren't actually completely devoted to God. They, they expressed their devotion to God by giving their children to a lowercase g, God. 
That's how messed up things are here. And it goes on to say, yes, they worshiped God. Yes, they swore to God. They made oaths to God. Yes, they brought sacrifices to God. But they've turned their back from following the Lord. And they do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So these people look the part, but don't play the part. So if you look closely, they don't really look the part. This is a, uh, a very, very uh, messed up time for God's people and the history of those who are called to, to be God's um, own, set apart for God. One might say these people were simply being inclusive or even respectful of the other many religions, you know, to each his own kind of approach. There are many other religions in the area and many other gods who other people worship. And so one might say that they're being inclusive one might say they're being respectful. One might say they're just trying to get the best from all the different traditions, uh, hedging their religious bets, um, just in case maybe there's some benefit over here, some truth or some power. Well, well yeah, sure, I'll throw the coin in the fountain. That's fine. Maybe, I'll, maybe my wish will come true. That sort of approach. And you're not of the devil if you've thrown a coin in a fountain. I'm just putting that out there. It's sort of this... Uh, they kind of have an idea with the syncretism that sort of all roads lead to the same place mentality. And when you hear someone talking about all roads leading to the same place, you should immediately think of the narrow way, which is the only way. And they are way off of the narrow way. And so um, my question is, you, we see God's people showing up for Sunday morning worship, bringing their offerings, wanting to give God their best, yet stepping off into sacrificing their children to Moloch, bowing down to other lowercase g gods, the Baals, we've already read about that, the, the, the host of heavens, lowercase h, host of heavens. So they're all over the map. So my question is this. What are some ways that we might do the same thing without being quite so direct in our approach? How are Christians today sometimes a bit pluralistic or syncretistic in their movement? This is getting real personal real fast, in case y'all hadn't figured that out. How are we sometimes a little pluralistic or syncretistic in our, in our movement? There's a way for you to speak without being a judgmental jerk, just so you know. I mean, there's small ways that we could even adopt some of these things in our daily life. What, what are some of those possibilities? Yeah. That's the most obvious one, isn't it? Just being totally materialistic. I trust God and God alone for everything I need. And then we have like closets full of way more than we would ever need. And then we whine about not having as much as we need. And then we go get new stuff and we're displeased with it within a week. So materialism doesn't really fit with trusting God for anything and everything. So we can be a little bit pluralistic or syncretistic in this approach of we trust God and we are a people of, of uh, simplicity and we don't want to be over the top. We don't want to have any idols. We don't want to have anything controlling us other than God. Yet, if the bank account drops below a certain amount, we get really upset and stressed out. And we argue with our spouses. And we, we say life isn't fair. And then, interestingly enough, when it comes up here, all of a sudden, everyone's in a good mood. And we're all happy. Let's go out to dinner kind of a thing. And so, yeah, we, we can have different ways we do this. What are some other ways that we can sometimes be pluralistic or syncretistic? Yeah, watering down the gospel. Why would anybody water down the gospel? So it wouldn't be so offensive. So 
We, we, we stand firm in the truth. We believe that it's breathed out by God. But yet there's these parts about God that we don't want to show to people because we don't want to offend them. What does it mean, what is it called, when an individual wants to hide parts about God from other people so that they don't offend those people? What's that called? A lie. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. What else is it called? What? Being ashamed? Yeah. Politically correct. PC. There we go. Now we're getting somewhere. What else is it? It might be politically correct. Why, why are so many people so ridiculously PC about everything? Why do they do that? Afraid, insecure. Don't want to offend anybody because if I do offend them, what happens? Yeah, I, I might lose my job. That'd be a big deal. Or maybe they just don't like me anymore. Maybe they talk about me like I'm a weirdo who is really an overzealous religious person. Selfishness. Yeah. Yeah, th- this whole thing is like, if there are parts, when, when you hear Paul say in, in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. Those aren't just gimmicky words that he uses as part of his evangelistic spiel. I mean, he, that is a genuine, deep, heartfelt desire to remain true to God and not, not hide parts of the gospel or not um, uh, keep people from, from, from being uncomfortable um, by the realities of judgment. So uh, some thoughts I had on this are one approach to answering this might be what's your backup plan? Like if, you know, if Jesus isn't real, what's your backup plan? Because... Some people have that. Like, like, like we can kind of, ha, ha, whatever. But people sometimes think in terms of, yeah, I trust Jesus completely, but I'm still going to do this. Like, I'm not just talking about an eternal backup plan. It might be a Tuesday backup plan. Like, I totally trust Jesus, but I don't have time to pray because I'm going to need to do this and this and this and this to make sure my day goes well. And if I get this here by this time or get this amount of money in the bank, then we'll be okay. I don't have time for the word, but I trust God. I trust him. I trust that he helps those who help themselves. So I'm going to help myself, and he will help me as I help myself. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Um, but this sort of backup plan where if you have one, you aren't really worshiping the one true God alone. If you're not really trusting God, but you're coming up with other things to trust in your own dynamic or your own possibility, then you're not really trusting God alone. And so that's kind of a way to consider it. I remember a guy talking about ministry. It was Vodi Bakken, actually. And um, I love a lot of what he says, not every single thing he says, but I love a lot of what he says. And I remember him, he was actually the guy preaching when I was 15 years old and accepted a call into the ministry. And he said, uh, he said um, you know, what's your backup plan if ministry doesn't work out? And it was like, I don't know, maybe make, build stuff, I don't know. <laughs> and it's like, no backup plan, go all in. He's an intense big guy, you know. And he's pretty much saying, you know, go all in because God's that trustworthy. And so... It, that doesn't mean to be a bad steward of your resources. It doesn't mean that planners are evil. Um, it just means that we need to really genuinely trust God. If, if you have these backup plans where you're not trusting God and you're able to trust in your own design, some people do it regarding marriage. Some people do it regarding their parenting. Um, some people do it regarding finances. A prepper. What about a prepper? Um, you know, um, if, if you are going to any level without trusting God, um, you're a fool. And that's all there is to it. 
But, you know, if you have a garage full of bottled water and some canned goods, no one's calling you crazy. Um, uh, but, yeah, there, there, there is a... I mean, really, it's a, it's a matter of where you spend most of your time. Do you spend most of your time thinking about how good God is and trusting Him and just moving forward? Or do you spend most of your time worrying about how someone can get the best of you? Or do you spend most of your time worrying about how something could go wrong? Or do you spend most of your time worrying about what could go wrong? I mean... That, that's a reality. I think when we start talking about, like, sometimes it really rears its head, like, during, when you're getting ready for a vacation. There are some people in this room who don't do well because if something goes wrong, you can't really enjoy your vacation. I've already explained that myself. I can't enjoy it because it's going to end in five days. Like, it's crazy talk. But um, it's a matter of where your thoughts are. Are you, tr- are, you, are you moving forward in such a manner that you trust God, or are you constantly thinking about the things that could go wrong, or just trying to control it, trying to control people? I mean, we can... Like, it talk, the way we use our words, Scripture has a lot to say about that. Like it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So every word that comes out of your mouth is fitting for the occasion, if it's the right word, and it gives grace to those who hear. But some of us use our words to control people because we don't really trust God so we don't really trust people. And so rather than using words to edify and build up, we were constantly trying to control people and keep things in line with the things that we say. So all this said, um, some other indicators might be found in building bigger barns. You know, Scripture says, don't build bigger barns, give some stuff away. Okay, I trust God, but I'm, I'll just build multiple barns. We'll just do multiple barns instead of a bigger barn, and, uh, and, and that'll be a fine. Um, maybe reading different types of literature, people-pleasing, um, there, there's a lot of different possibilities here. I remember a friend of mine, it was about uh, probably 14 years ago, and we'd done some ministry together, and, um, and he was reading a book on Buddhism. I was like, hey, what? we were doing ministry together at, in the <laughs> moment. Said, hey, what's that all about? He's like, it's like, man, there's some really great stuff in here. I just feel like if we mesh some of this stuff with some of you know, what we're you know, doing in ministry, like there's some really great stuff. And I was like... Yeah, I don't think that's a good ministry plan. Let's talk about that because that's what he's doing. It's called syncretism, trying to put it together. Dever has a, a, a quote in his study, in his um, survey. He says, Our witness to the gospel must not be compromised by tolerating among those who call themselves believers lifestyles that are opposed to God's will. As individual congregations, therefore, we must commit ourselves to clear preaching and teaching and clear practice of church discipline. So here's my question, and please hear the, uh, the, the particularity of it. How does tolerating opposing lifestyles within the church, we're going to talk about outside of the church next week, how does, opposing, how does tolerating opposing lifestyles within the church compromise our witness? Because this was happening within God's people. All this crazy, sacrificial, bowing down to idol stuff. Yep. Yeah, it influences other people in the body. Who are some of the most influenceable people? In, influence, in, influential? Influential. Who are the most able to be influenced? Children. We're talking about children, okay? I don't know what the word is. But they're very influenceable. <laughs> That's not the right word. I'm certain of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, people are watching. And you can look at, I mean, these weren't just the young morons. These were people all throughout the, have y'all figured it out? Impressionable. Impressionable. That, it was up here. It was up there somewhere. Good job. Throw me a bone earlier next time. Um, 
impressionable. Yeah, these weren't just the young people doing this. I mean, these are people of every age that were bowing down and doing these different things. And it wasn't particular to just a little group of the church. It was, it was pervasive throughout the church. Um, uh, so what are some other ways that, oppo- that tolerating opposing lifestyles within the church can compromise our witness? Yeah. You have to either choose one or the other because yeah. you can't be permissible and then also untolerating the scripture. Yeah. Okay with one or the other. Yeah, so you have to say when you're trying to correct something that is an opposing lifestyle that is not fitting, um, the means by which we measure it's scripture. And so like if you, have you ever approached someone in sin? And said, hey, I need, you know, I need to talk to you about this. This is something I've seen. I'm seeing a, a pattern, some, some characteristics, and, and you talk to them about it. If they want to keep doing it, what do they usually say? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. I, I can, I, I'm in control of it. I, got, I can quit anytime. Yeah. What else do they sometimes say? What? I'm not hurting anyone. This is just my thing. I'm, it's not hurting anyone. Don't judge me. Oh, that's like immediate. Oh, you're God now. Yeah. Yeah, you're a sinner too. Yeah, yeah. What'd you say over here? Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll say, well, that's, that's your perspective. Everyone has their own perspective, as if somehow God just lets us do whatever we want with his words and twist them however is fitting for our occasion. So top, tolerating opposing lifestyles within the church, it's a problem, and we're not called to be okay with it as God's people. And what happens when you're okay with it is what happened in the book of Zephaniah in 630-ish B.C. A very real people made of the same stuff we're made of who said they were committed to God. But when you really look closely, it was terrifying. It wasn't just problematic. It was utterly terrifying and gross and vile. The problem with allowing such things is that allowing them misrepresents God. What God's presenting in Zephaniah chapter 1 is a picture of undivided loyalty. What does God um, call his people to in verse 7? What's it say? Be silent before the Lord. To be silent before the Lord. What might such silence in that moment accomplish? They're out of control. Be silent before the Lord. What might that accomplish? What is it accomplishing right now? Yeah. Yeah. You can maybe hear. Maybe some reverence. When he says to be silent, when I'm thinking about, well, what might that accomplish? I'm thinking reverence and hearing. Um, we talked about, remember the discipline of solitude and how it's, it's a fitting discipline because it allows you to actually listen. Casey Francis drew a cartoon of me um, and the little blurb says, um, you can only hear if you're silent. And I totally look like the guy from Breaking Bad, but that's beside the point <laughs> in, her, in her deal. Um, not in real life, just in cartoon life. Um, but reverence and hearing, being silent. So here, I really want to kind of drive this home um, because it's such an interesting, be silent before the Lord God, right in the middle of all kinds of idolatry and vile living. 
My question is this. When are many of us most silent? Aside from the babies, when are many of us most silent? When are we most silent? When you're asleep? Okay, I figured that would be the number one answer. Prayer? When you're uncomfortable? All right, these are all good spiritual answers. Really, when are you the most silent? When you're hiding? When you really want to hear something? But like today, when were you the most silent? When you're alone? <laughs> you're never alone, yeah. When you're uncertain? Like, when do you sit and not talk? When you're in the bathroom. I feel like this is getting a little personal, a little too much information. Meditating, that would be a good spiritual thing. When you're hiding, yeah. When you're trying not to yell at your children, yeah. I'm just not going to say anything because I can't say anything nice, yeah. What about like in front of your TV? When you're the most silent. When do you scream at everyone else to be the most silent? What about on social media? I mean, people chatter, 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 and then one person takes out their phone, and then everyone else takes out their phone, and within moments you have silence because you're all looking at something very important that cannot wait. So I'm thinking we're very silent in front of our TVs. We're very silent on social media. We can be very attentive in front of the game if the game is on. What happens when your children walk in and the game is on? Oh, sure. Right. Shh. Can you keep it down? No. You throw your shoe or something. Yeah. Be quiet. Get out of here. The game's on. I can't see. Move over. Make a better door than you do a window. Yeah. Um, sometimes we're very silent in front of our computer at work. Um, sometimes the, we're, the only time we're really silent listening is if we're reading. Like some of us are readers, but you, you need to also know reading, reading itself can be an idol. And so sometimes that's like this, this time where you don't want to um, allow any other possibilities in that moment. So um, let, let, me, let me ask this. How do you silent your children? Give them a sucker. Bribery. How else do you silent your children? Send them to the room for quiet time? You distract them. Yeah? Put them in front of the TV. There you go. I like the honesty. I've noticed a new trend um, of silencing your kids. Anyone want to guess it? What'd you say? Cell phones. Yeah. Hey. Zip it. Here, look, watch something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a, a thing. So when we're talking about, when he says be silent before the Lord, I'm trying to think the reverence and the hearing that is accomplished in there. I want us to really consider what it is that we're most silent in front of throughout the course of a day. I mean, sometimes at the end of the day, after you've been with kiddos all day or been teaching all day or working all day and you get home, you may spend two and a half hours in silence in front of the TV because that's like the way that you unplug and turn off. But if there's no silence before God, there's a problem. That's what we're getting at here. 
If there's silence in all these other areas, if you can sit and play a game for hours, if you're a gamer, if you can sit and watch a game for hours, and if you can sit and watch some show that you had no interest in before the show came on for an hour, yet there's no time for silence before God, that's an imbalance. There's something wrong there. So my question is, what does it look like to practically be silent before the Lord on a Tuesday? What does it look like to practically be silent before the Lord? This is when all your Sunday school answers will work well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Your schedule is full of your priorities. You can say certain things are priorities, but if they don't actually make it on the schedule and you don't actually, you know, do them, they're not actually a priority. They're, you're just doing what they're doing and saying one thing but doing another. And so it's important. Some of us need to take the steps to say, okay, every day at this time, or I'm going to get up earlier than the kids do, or I, I'm going to not just turn the TV, off as soon as, TV on as soon as they go to bed. Something. There are ways that we can get quiet before the Lord, and I think really genuine, silent, proper silent time before Him is time in the Word, uh, time studying. Um, I think... Think about how you give yourself to receiving information every day. How do you give yourself to receiving information every day? And so the question would be, do you study God's Word the way that you study Facebook? I mean, is there... I mean, I have to take Facebook off of the computer when I'm at work because my brain does this thing where if it's been like a couple minutes, I'm like, what did I miss? Click. Repeat, what did I miss? What did I miss? And you can distract yourself all day with refreshing the stupid page to, to look at Facebook or Instagram or whatever else. And, you know, if your kids are on there or your grandkids, it's, it's sometimes even more difficult. This isn't limited to just teenagers. So do you study God's Word the way you study other things? The way you set yourself up to receive information from other things, do you set yourself up to receive information from God? Even the way you study for school. Um, sometimes i got to spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on school stuff. Um, and then... When it comes to personal devotions, I'm like, well, I'll take five minutes, and, and there's an imbalance there. Um, or the way you study your finances and your investments. Some of us have a much better um, hold on our portfolios than we do the Word of God, or, or just the way you study, like I said, the television. We should be thankful that God is God alone. Um, Michael Ramsey says, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. God's people were proud in this disobedience in in Zephaniah 1. Um, They were proud and they were not humbly silent before God alone. They were sometimes silent before God, but then they were more often silent before other gods. The second point, which is shorter, um, but no less important, is that God is active. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. God is active. On that day, the killer is the Lord. A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out, um, all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Um, your footnote says um, the thickening of the dregs. We'll come back to that. And it says, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. 
Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. So instead of silence here, there will be wailing. And the people wailing are those in the market district because the things that they have put value on are going away because of God's judgment. So it's interesting. What is it about their thoughts that are egregious to God? What is it about their thoughts that God hates? Uh-huh. Yeah, anything that, yeah, anything that places more importance other than him. And particularly in verse 12, what are they saying in their minds that God does not like? Yes. I want us to really understand in closing tonight what they are accusing God of. Indifference. Exactly. They are complacent. They view God as apathetic and indifferent. Consequently, what does this perspective on God lead them to? How are they acting? Apathetic and indifferent. That's how it works. So their view is that God's not going to do anything about what's going on. They're in the middle. We already know the vile wickedness that they're in the middle of. And there are those who are of the household of faith who are saying, God's not going to do good to you. God's not going to do bad to you. God, God doesn't care. That's what they're saying in the middle of the wickedness. And so turn over to Psalm 115. I want us to see this connection. And we'll talk about it a little more next week in our intro. But here's what I want us to see. Psalm 115 says this. Look at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but don't hear. Uh, don't see. Ears, but don't hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. The biblical reality of idols is that when you make one, you become like it. And if you worship one that someone else has made, you become like it. Here's what I want us to close with. I want us to close with the reality that your version of God can be an idol. Your version of God can be an idol. It doesn't have to be some carven image out of wood. It can be your perspective of God because they were guilty of idolatry because they viewed God as apathetic and indifferent. And what did they become like? Apathetic and indifferent. This is really important in the time that we live because there are many areas of our society and culture that in fact want the church to be apathetic and indifferent, right? What are two hot button issues where they would really prefer us to shut our mouths and be apathetic and indifferent? A marriage and abortion. They would rather us shut our mouths and say, we do what you do, you do what you do, all, lo- all the roads lead to the same place. But we can't do that. Why? Because it misrepresents God. If your view of God is such that he is apathetic and indifferent, your view of God has become an idol, and it's only a matter of time until you become like your idol. If you follow this map, not being silent leads to complacency. How would you describe complacency? Satisfied. 
satisfaction in the status quo. And a lot of times when you have that satisfaction in the status quo, one of the things that happens is, I'm okay with sin. I mean, you know, you start sort of forgiving yourself for sins you haven't actually repented of. It is what it is. You can become complacent. You're not eager to put to death, therefore, the deeds of the flesh that are in you. And so the map that we have for us that we're going to continue on next week is not being silent before God leads to complacency. We're self-satisfied and we're pleased with ourselves. We begin to pardon our own faults. This leads to apathy and indifference when it comes to other people. That is not what the church is called to. That is not a good evangelistic effort of just, hey, apathy and indifference and we'll win them over eventually. That is biblically false. And in fact, I'll just say biblically stupid. When, when this gets down to sort of the brass tacks of it for us as, as people, if there is any sin in your life that you're okay with, you're becoming complacent. That's one indicator. Well, I've always been this way. I've always struggled with this and I'm just gonna, it just is what it is. It's okay to acknowledge your fallen nature, but it is not okay to allow your fallen nature to be the reason for you to continue in sin in an area. That's a sign of complacency, which will lead to things like indifference and apathy. The illustration of wine, those wine dregs, if you read in the bottom, the thickening of the dregs or what they're compared to, indicates the effect of wine left in a container for too long during the fermentation process. Um, I remember when I was little, there was a bottle of wine in, in our, uh, in our uh, garage. And I said, hey, Dad, what's that? He's like, that's the wine from our, our wedding and on our 20th anniversary or whatever. We're going we're gonna to share a glass. And that was, he managed liquor stores before my parents got married. Children's minister, and he managed liquor stores. And, um, and, uh, and so he's like, he had a really good bottle of wine. He said, we're going to drink it. And... Um, when the 20th anniversary came, they, they popped it, and there was a, a smell that filled the room that was not pleasant. And they realized that there was a, a small pinhole in the wine. And so this fine wine was absolutely worthless because of the dregs, the fermentation process that had occurred. Usually it gets finer with time, and this had become rotten with time because of how it was mixed in with the dregs at the bottom of the barrel, at the bottom of its container. What this illustration does is... It's saying you're good for nothing, essentially, because of the way you're being. The coagulated material at the bottom of the flask made all of the wine undrinkable. My parents did not share a glass of wine that night. They poured a very expensive bottle down the drain because none of it was good anymore. That's what God's people were, were, were bordering on right here. That's what they were being compared to. So apathy and indifference misrepresent God, and our activity is meant to reflect God's activity. So the encouragement tonight as we close is to Fight against complacency by being regularly silent before God and attentive to the forward movement of his kingdom. And what I want you guys to consider, and we may talk about it next week, you may just need to consider it on your own. What version of God do you have that may not be the biblical version of God? Because for them, it was an apathetic and indifferent God. And that's what they became. Well, for you, it might be a judgmental and unloving God. And so you, in fact, might be sometimes judgmental and unloving towards people. Or for you, it might be, uh, you know, granddad in the sky who doesn't, who's more along the indifference line and you, you just give you a hug no matter what. He doesn't require anything of you. And then you may become the kind of person who doesn't think God requires anything of people. And so you hide the things in scripture about God's justice and God's wrath. Um, spend some time thinking about that. I, I really... 
I, I, I really believe that the timing is interesting here because we're going to talk about some of this in Isaiah on Sunday, and then we're going to talk about, we talked about some of it last week in Isaiah, and these are recurring themes, and so I do want y'all to really spend some time considering your view of God, and is there any way that your view of God has become an idol because it's not actually God, and is there any way that it's being reflected in the way you're living, and if so, that's where you go for repentance. That leads you kind of down these paths to say, that's where repentance needs to happen, and you turn from that, and you, you overcome those thoughts with truth, and you move in the direction of that which is holy. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for Zephaniah. Um, I'm thankful for the words that you spoke through Zephaniah and how they still speak to us today. It really does blow my mind how particular the Scripture can sometimes speak to us as we talk about different views of God and the way that it affects we, um, our, our dealings with other people. Um, Lord, I, I think we face much of the same same trial and temptations today to be indifferent and apathetic towards those inside of the church and outside of the church who are moving in a way that is absolutely not fitting according to your plan and your design. Um, Lord, help us to stand firm in the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the realities of Christ, the fulfillment and the, the uh, prophecies and the things spoken of and the promises. Lord, help us to be firm in those things Help us to have a proper view of you that leads to right dealing with other people. Lord, you are very good to us. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.